All right, if you have a copy of uh, God's Holy Word with you, I invite you to open up to uh, Genesis chapter 11, please. Genesis chapter 11. Um, and one word of uh, announcement that I forgot to bring up, and I said it a couple weeks ago, that uh, as a staff and as leadership teams, we've been going through this one book called Becoming a Welcoming Church, and it's really transformed how we have thought about um, interacting with each other and interacting with guests and new people. And so if you've been with us for a while or maybe you're new and, and you're excited to be here and want to know how you can plug in a little bit more, this is a great read for you. And there are five copies that are going to be over here on this table. So after church, uh, if, if you want to grab that, it's yours. It's free. Um, and it won't take you that long to, uh, to get through. And I think it'll be a blessing and a benefit uh, to you. Now, as we're opened up to... Uh, Genesis 11, there are a couple things that, that I just need to sort of explain in philosophy about how I go about uh, preaching a passage. If you've been with us any sort of time, you know that I, I typically take a book and I go all the way through it, sort of chapter by chapter, sometimes verse by verse. And you'll notice that uh, the last time I was up here two weeks ago, uh, we talked about Noah and we ended in, in chapter 9. And you're probably wondering why am I not going to be talking about chapter 10 like at all? Uh, and it's not just because it's a genealogy, but really the thing that we need to get out of that is um, it is explaining how the generations grew to where we're getting to today in the story of the Tower of Babel. And so uh, then when we uh, get past uh, chapter nine, uh, chapter 11 in our verse, in, in verse uh, 9, we see Shem's descendants from 10 following, and basically that is uh, the author leading us toward how did we go from Babel to Abraham. So if you want to know sort of the storyline of what's going on, that would be a good way to think about it. But we're going to be talking about the Tower of Babel today, and as we get started, allow me to pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are worthy to be praised. Lord, you are the Redeemer of our soul. You are um, a kind friend. You're a shelter. You are a rock. And so, Father, I pray that today as we examine this story of the Tower of Babel, would you expose those parts of us that maybe we don't know about or don't want to deal with, that we would see in what ways we set ourselves up against you. And Lord, would you not use this as a time uh, to condemn us, but rather to, uh, to break us down, to build us back up again, to see the glory of Christ and who he is, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. You know, every so often there will be a song that is, that is such a smash hit that it will continue to be popular 30 plus years after it's released. Most songs really only have about a shelf life of a week or two. If it's a decent song, it'll stay on the charts for uh, maybe a, a few months. Um, and though you might, not rem you might remember them, uh, they don't typically stick culturally. Uh, in 1987, there was a song that was such a smash hit that it is, uh, it's not hard to find on Cool 108 now or, or other uh, avenues of, of media. Uh, in fact, on Spotify, it alone had, as of just about a week ago, 116 million plays. Now, granted, 100 of those probably are me, but... 
I'm doing my little contribution into getting them up to 116 million. In, 19, in 1988, the song was nominated for a Grammy Award for the best female pop performance, only to lose to Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody. So you're talking about going against this huge uh, cultural song that all of us know. And what is that, that super smash hit? It's Belinda Carlisle's Heaven is a Place on Earth. And if, even if I mention it right now, some of you are probably already singing it in your head because it's such a poppy song. And part of the allure of that song is that it's simple, it's catchy, and it's got this smooth rock drive under it, and it's got Belinda Carlisle's smooth vocals that are, that are uh, sort of taking it to the top. But the secret of that sauce is how the tune, how the melody, how the drive combines with its most important part, which is the message of the song. And the message of Carlisle's song is unlike most of the genre. Uh, in fact, it's unlike most of any pop genre because most pop songs are, are pretty fluffy and pretty forgettable. It's uh, lyrics that uh, really don't mean anything other than, well, I mean, nothing. I mean, really, analyze pop lyrics and, and you're not going to get very far. But Carlyle tapped into something that resonates very deeply into every single human heart. The chorus, if you remember, Ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Ooh. Yes! They say in heaven, love comes first. We'll make heaven a... Oh, you guys are awesome. You guys aren't so awesome. You're not singing over here. Over here, this is great. Yeah. Well, I'm not an 80s girl, but I can say yes, but yes. 70s know it too. That's great. That's great. Hey, we're an equal opportunity group here, right? Yeah. So when you peel away these, these layers of 80s pop glam and examine the substance of the chorus, we find why we like that song so much. We like the idea of heaven being here on earth. We like the idea of the world being governed by love. But the problem is, is that when we look throughout our world, we see that it, it's not that way. We see that it doesn't seem like heaven is a place on earth. It doesn't seem like love is sort of the guiding principle. And so, therefore, I don't know if you caught it or not, but Carlisle sneaks in this line that is so embedded um, into our psyche that we actually don't see the evil in it. And it's the lyric that says, we'll make heaven a place on earth. You see, deep in, in your heart, in my heart, in the heart of every person that has ever lived, uh, there's this desire to experience this, what we want to think of as heaven. But we don't necessarily want it in any other terms, but the ones that we set for it. And so what we do then is that we build these little kingdoms for ourselves in which we accept no threats, and we will impose our rules on any opposing kingdoms. We do this personally, we do it socially, we do it uh, politically, we do it economically, we do it religiously, and we do it relationally. And we are impatient. We don't like that heaven that God has promised for us. And so now these little kingdoms that we build for ourselves are our attempt at creating this utopia here and now. The problem is, though, 
is that when we build our kingdoms, when we try to make heaven a place on earth, it inevitably ends in disaster in one way or another. While we may think that we are building a better tomorrow, what we are in essence doing is not progressing, but rather regressing into an ancient Babylonian mistake of thinking that we are capable of creating heaven here for ourselves and becoming like God. Belinda Carlisle's song wasn't new in 1987. It's a song that humans have been singing for centuries and millennia from the past. And this is what the Babylonians did so well physically in our passage here, what we do spiritually. Build a kingdom where we sit on the throne as God and see the true God as a threat to what we have established. Let's take a look at at Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. This is what uh, Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they'll do, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them from the face of the earth. So we must escape this idea that heaven is a place that we can make ourselves. We have to flee from this idea that we are the masters of our own domains, and we must recognize who the true king is, and we must pledge our allegiance to him and him alone. And there's three ways in which we should do that starting today. And the first is that we need to recognize how pride shows itself in our lives. Recognize how pride shows up in our lives. You know, in November 2016, there was an organization called Cards Against Humanity. Uh, It was actually born out of this one game that they had created, but they offered a Black Friday deal like none other. Uh, An NPR article on November 27th of 2016 wrote this about a fundraiser that this organization was doing. They wrote this. They announced that they were planning to celebrate, celebrate Black Friday by digging a giant pointless hole in the ground. The company named it the Holiday Hole and said that they would dig it for as long as people were willing to pay for it. So even though there's absolutely no point whatsoever to digging this hole, they actually ended up collecting $100,573 to collect a hole. That meant, uh, to dig a hole, that meant absolutely nothing. 
And it isn't the first time that the organization has done pointless schemes like that. A year before on Black Friday, the group collected $71,145 after it asked people to, to give $5 to receive absolutely nothing in return. A year before that, on Black Friday in 2014, the group literally sold bull feces to 30,000 people and ended up making $180,000 off of this scheme. Now, it's easy for us to hear such stories like this and wonder how in the world is it possible that, don't, that people would donate their hard-earned money to an organization that uh, has the desire to dig a pointless hole. Well, even further, who would donate $5 to an organization so that they would knowingly get nothing back in return? They're not donating to a 501c3 to better the world. It's just a waste $5. And the whole bull feces thing, I don't know, you can use your imagination for that, but when we look at the heart of this pointlessness... We see the essence of human pride, which is pouring out our resources to make a name for ourselves with an end that is absolutely pointless. In Genesis 11, verses 1 through 4, we find this this historical vignette, how you and I attempt to live on our own apart from God. Our pride is shown in four ways. And the first one is that we show our pride in self-sufficiency. We show our pride in self-sufficiency. Notice in verses 1 and 2 that there is an indication that the collective population not only engaged in doing life their own way, but they've deliberately gone against what God has commanded them to do. Look at verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So on the surface, this looks perfectly innocent. What is wrong with them settling down? But when we connect it to what's come before and what goes after, we find that they are displaying an intense rebellion against God. For one, notice that they're rebelling against God's judgment. If you remember back from chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, one of the judgments that that God gave Adam and Eve was that they were banished from the Garden of Eden. And as they were expelled from the garden, it was guarded by a flaming sword and, and some cherubim, and the eastern gate was protected by them. And God had... Uh, essentially judged them to go eastward away from the garden. That's important to note. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, when Cain had been judged by God for the murder of his brother Abel, where did God send him to? To the east, away from the presence of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 13, we're going to find this when we look at Abraham's life, uh, that uh, Lot chose the eastern lands of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you know the story of what happens in Genesis there, you know that that eastern uh, way is not good. In chapter 23, Abraham buried his wife to the east of Mamre, which now we're symbolizing east and death. Genesis 25, Abraham expels his concubines away from him to the east. But now here in chapter 11, verse 2, we find something opposite. Here is a world that is expanding, but they're not continuing east. 
rather in defiance against God's judgment, notice what it says. They were migrating from the east, which should tell us logically they're traveling west. They are trying to undo and reverse the curse on their own by setting up their own Eden apart from God and apart from His ways. It's a collective attitude that says, you know what, forget what God says. We are going to set up camp here. We are going to set up heaven on earth. And further, not only do they clearly do their own thing in this regard, but notice that they're also rebelling against God's creation mandate to be fruitful and to multiply uh, in the earth by settling in the land. They're disregarding this. They're wanting their population to stay in one spot rather than expanding. Added to that fact, look at verse 1. It tells us that they have one language, so they have plenty of opportunity to be fruitful in their rebellion. So, you know, we may not be as defiant as these ancient people here, but how often do we practice sort of the same mindset? Well, I know that I shouldn't engage in premarital or extramarital or perverted sex, but God doesn't know exactly how I feel, and it just seems so antiquated. You know, I know I shouldn't say what I want to say to that person that hurt me so bad, but it's just going to feel so good to do it. I know I shouldn't engage in this or that activity, but I really want to be popular in school, so I'm willing to go against what I know is right in order to gain a little more. I know I shouldn't watch this show. I shouldn't go to this website, but... It really isn't that bad. I know I shouldn't live with this person even though we're not married, but we're going to get married and we're just testing it out. Just like the people in ancient Babylon, we crave self-sufficiency. But our pride is also shown in self-actuality. It's shown in self-actuality. Look at me in verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So in their pride, one of their goals was to make a good name for themselves. There was this desire to be known and to be lauded throughout the world. And in their, they want to be known for their architectural pursuits. They want to be known for their ingenuity. They want to be known for their skills. You know, a number of weeks ago, I, I watched this documentary that, uh, that followed four people that were what you would call internet famous. And these people were either uh, wildly popular on YouTube or Instagram or uh, TikTok or whatever these... Uh, Twitter, whatever these social media things were. And it was very apparent that this documentary was not glamorizing the position that they were in. Rather, it was showing the, the nature of the bondage that these people had gotten into. Here are these people that have huge cult-like followings, but yet they're desperately depressed. They're constantly chasing. 
the next best thing that they can do to, to one-up themselves so that they can get more likes, so they can get more subscriptions, so that they can get more endorsements, which ends up equaling more money. They were desperately building these towers for themselves. But what they all admitted to was that they couldn't find a way out except in two ways. It was either to uh, continue building themselves up, which is a non-negotiable, or it's to eventually get knocked down. Now, any of you that have had children or built blocks with children, it's super fun to build a tower with blocks as high as you can get, right? But inevitably, the higher that you get, the more in, un, uh, unstable, instable, non-stable it becomes. And it just can't sustain itself after a while, and it's going to end up come crashing down. So here are these people that have built these, these huge towers, realizing that they have to constantly be producing new, constantly be putting more and more weights the higher that they go, and they have to do this by producing new, uh, dicier material, more crazy and bizarre things in order to stay on top. And they are a grand-scale illustration of what we do. How many of us put something on Facebook or Instagram or uh, Snapchat or uh, Twitter or whatever it is, not for the sake of posting it for no reason at all, but in order to, to show the world that you're something that maybe you're not? And so you constantly wait for that ding on the notification, or you constantly go back to that social media site in order to see how many people have liked this picture, how many people have liked this quote that I put. And how many of us, in doing so, when we find that we have a post that maybe we have two likes, we're like, seriously, they didn't like my Insta on that one? And we look for another way in which we can be more popular or be more liked in that sort of way. Or perhaps you're climbing the corporate ladder. You're performing well at work. You're getting in with the right people. But it's not because you're trying to do your work in honor to God, but rather it's trying to network and, and move yourself up further and further. Maybe you are a person that changes your personality depending on who you're hanging out with in order to get in with the right people and make something stick so that you can have some sort of social or, or monetary benefit from knowing them. And the thing is... We don't need to esteem ourselves. When we are in Christ, it doesn't matter if our name is great. It doesn't matter uh, who knows you or who you know. The only thing that matters is the name that God gives us. Sons and daughters of the living God. Think about that. In Genesis chapter 12, See this in the fall. God doesn't tell Abraham, go and make a name for yourself. God says, I will make your name great. 2 Samuel 7, when God is, is talking to David, he says the same thing. I will make your name great. Philippians 2, God gave Jesus a name that's above all names. And if we are in Christ, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, tells us that God will give 
every single one of us a name who are in Christ, a name that nobody else knows. Can you imagine what that'll be like one day when you are with God in heaven and he's got a name for you that nobody else knows? How special is that? You can build a huge following. You can captivate great crowds, have a famous name, but none of it matters compared to the name that God has given us. We serve an audience of one. His is the only like that we should be searching for. But notice further that pride shows up in self-salvation. The last part of verse 4, we read of them attempting to build this tower with its tops in the heavens, and their goal wasn't necessarily just to reach heaven themselves on their own, but to create heaven. They wanted heaven to be a place on earth and have absolutely nothing to do with God. They weren't necessarily striving to work their way into heaven. Rather, they were striving for competition with God. They went beyond what Eve did when she took the fruit. Remember when when, uh, the serpent told Eve, if you take of this fruit, you will be like God? They're going way beyond that. They don't want to be like God. They want to be God. When anyone lives for autonomy and fame, it will inevitably lead to a pursuit of being God-like. Many of us go on our days after seeking a kingdom described in Scripture, but one, uh, we, we search after the kingdom that we've created in our own minds. Anytime that we get hurt, offended, disgusted, or feel wronged, and may, I'm talking more illegitimately wronged here, we maybe get angry, because, not because the act was necessarily objectively wrong, but because someone violated our kingdom standards. When you get cut off on the highway and, you're, and you yell, well, it's because your regal law was transgressed. You're hurt because of something that your spouse said or did. It was probably not necessarily because they broke one of the Ten Commandments, but because they broke one of your commandments. When your pride deludes you into thinking that you're autonomous, it will lead you to being oversensitive, negative, critical, and hard on yourself. And you're not seeking the kingdom of God, but you're protecting the kingdom of self. Which leads us to the fourth way that pride shows itself, which is through self-protection. Pride shows itself through self-protection in creating this little hamlet um, through their own abilities and efforts. Notice that they find comfort and protection against what God may do to them. You know, we talk about unity in the church being a good thing, and it is, but there does come a time when unity is actually a really bad thing. And we see an example of it here. They're banning together in one language in order to prevent them from being scattered because being scattered means losing influence, losing fame, and losing power. And likewise, we will build walls and fences around ourselves in order to protect our selfishness. 
We find comfort in homogeny, only associating with those who look like us, think like us, and talk like us. We vote only for those who we think represent uh, our tribe. And anyone else that votes unlike, uh, anyone else who votes not in the same way that we do, well, they're evil and we can't have anything to do with them. Golly, you can't be Christian and be a Democrat. See, we chuckle out of that because we know that we put up those walls. And it's a ridiculous thought. We build ministries around personalities and we refuse to engage in things outside our comfort zone. The, 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 the commission to make disciples sounds great for other people, but we have these spiritual walls that won't allow us to take risks for the advancement of the gospel. In these things, we're not doing anything new, but rather we are engaging in an ancient Babylonian pagan practice of self-protection, which oddly uh, isn't rooted in self-sufficiency, but it's rooted in fear. An unhealthy fear of God, the world, and an unhealthy appreciation of our own greatness. Ironically, in our attempt to puff ourselves up, we're going to get deflated. We can either be deflated into despair or we can deflate ourselves and look to Christ who is the one, the only one who gives us our self-worth. The essence of Christianity is this, that Christ died for our sins and we are to live lives that are giving of ourselves. It is to love God and to love neighbor. It is to think much of God. It is to think less, not think less of ourselves, but to think about ourselves less and give ourselves over to other people, to get rid of yourself, to fill yourself with Christ for the good of others. Scripture tells us that that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 6 tells us that we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he might lift us up in due time. Which leads to our second point now, is that we need to humble ourselves in light of God's power. Humble ourselves in light of God's power. If there is one major thing that we need to take from this passage, it is the greatness of God in the smallness of us. Look at how it's described in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So there was this time when our, our two oldest boys were really into bugs. And it was fun to see them outside when they saw some bugs because inevitably they did the same thing all the time. They would see the bug on the ground and they would look at it, get on their knees, look at it before they tried to pick it up and play with it or whatever it was. You've probably seen a child doing that because they recognize the greatness of their size compared to this little bug. And here in this text, we, we see that God is presented as so much bigger than our plans, so much bigger than our desires, so much bigger than who 
we are. That there's this image of God having to get down and look at what do they think they're doing. I'm way up here and their tower is as big as about an anthill. God is showing us how great and how big he is. The funny thing is, is that we think that we're so great and high in the things that we build, but yet God has to condescend to see what we're up to. And this shows us that regardless of our prideful plans to reach heaven or create one on our own, it is a silly pursuit. We can't do that. Rather, God has to come down to us. He has to condescend to remind us of our smallness. Look at verse 6. It it describes God's observation that the city and the tower is only the beginning of their rebellion. This is just a tower. We far surpassed these people in Babylon today. We think that we have the right to make decisions about life and death regarding the terminally ill or the unborn. We think that we are the ones that can define marriage and gender. We think that we can be the ones who determine morality. And all these things, God simply looks down and says, boy, mm, simply all of their plans right there it will now be impossible for them to do. There's no limit to the creativity of our, weak, of our wickedness. And in verse 7 then, God goes a little bit further. Instead of just stooping down to observe, he actually lowers himself to be among them. Not for their good, but for their ill. And in giving them a variety of languages here, it points uh, to um, putting plans on hold. If you've ever been in a foreign country and, where they speak a different language, you'll, and you don't know that language... Something as simple as ordering a meal is really difficult, and it's really frustrating. You may say, "Uh, I'll take the number one, and you end up with squid on your plate, which has actually happened to me once before. And um, so imagine then if you didn't understand what was going on during a massive building project. Verse 9, their worst nightmare becomes true. In their disunity, they realized that they weren't special. In uh, a recent interview with UK's Mirror magazine, actress Catherine Zeta-Jones was quoted as saying this, One thing I'm not is humble anymore. I'm sick of being humble. I really am. So sorry I'm rich. So sorry I'm married to a movie star. So sorry I'm not that bad looking. No sorries. Enough. All that is important to me now is my work. That's what I love and the rest of my life is a joy because I've got two beautiful kids and a healthy, happy husband. It's all good and I'm not going to be humble for that either. Now, it's easy to understand where she might be coming from and and what her intent is. However, it's very apparent that Catherine Zeta-Jones here neither understands what humility is 
nor does she understand what kind of danger she's actually in in putting a statement like that. But then again, many of us, we carry those same sort of attitudes. When we set our sights on opposing God and his design for our lives, believing as if everything we have and have accomplished and accumulated is because of our greatness, God may give us time to come to our senses. But sooner or later, he's going to stop just looking down, shaking his head. He is going to come down and oppose us. And in our attempts to be like God and setting up our own kingdoms, we'll find that we're actually setting up the stage for a heavenly invasion. Instead, we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And in that humility, we find our third thing, and that is that we need to receive the remedy. We need to receive the remedy. The people thought that their plans were going to make them great, make them like God, but God had a totally different plan, one that they should spread and multiply throughout the earth. Instead of following that plan, they stayed. And in response to their pride, God forced a humility on them, causing them confusion in their language, having them realize their worst fears. And when we face God with our own plans and in our own intentions and wills and cling to them, He will oppose us as well. But when we come to Him in humility and faith, He reverses this effect of the curse on us. Though we uh, see the effects today of the Tower of Babel, there's a lot of languages out there why we support some missionaries in this church so that the gospel can go to them. We also see that in Acts chapter 2, God had reversed the Tower of Babel to a certain extent. Remember the Holy Spirit was poured upon the disciples at Pentecost. There was flaming tongues over their heads. They go out to Solomon's portico and they start preaching. And all of a sudden they all start speaking in different languages that they had never learned before. But yet people from all over the world who had come there for Pentecost can understand them in their own tongue. Luke records this in Acts chapter 2. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So at Pentecost, all of these tragic effects of Babel were being transformed by God's grace, and he began ransoming a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And the most important takeaway that we can get from this today is how he did that. God responded to our pride through the humility of his son. Whereas we build towers for ourselves, towers of reputation, power, money, sex, greed, whatever it is, God, the creator of the universe, the one who has the right to demand that everyone see his greatness, made himself 
human. Whereas we could not reach heaven on our own, as hard as we try, heaven has come to us in Jesus Christ. He became flesh and dwelt among us. It is the greatest act of humiliation and, con- and condescension that the world has ever seen. And whereas our goal is to make a name for ourselves, he accomplished greatness through humility by humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. And he won victory for us through his humility and submission to God. By trusting in Christ, you and I can be freed to live as we were created to live. We can live apart from the bondage of always having to prove ourselves, always having to make a name for ourselves, to constantly fight the battle to one-up someone else, or to constantly outdo what we did last week, or yesterday, or last year. In Christ, we have an identity that is given, not earned. And he calls us to the same mindset. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God has highly, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it is there again that we find the essence of true life. Living beyond ourself. Living for the good of others. You know, when we recognize our pride when we humble ourselves and receive the remedy in Jesus Christ, we find that heaven might not be a place on earth, but we sure get a taste of it in Jesus Christ. Jesus has given of himself so that we can be freed to give of ourselves. You know, Belinda Carlisle was, was way off. Heaven is not a place on earth. But it was at one point. Jesus, the high king of heaven, came to rescue you from the tyranny of your self-kingdom by humbling yourself, repenting, and trusting in Christ you can have a piece of heaven here on your life, uh, here in your life, and one day you can have it all in Him.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, in so many ways, we try to set ourselves against you. Lord, we repent of our foolishness. We recognize it, Lord, and we want to change. Lord, I pray for those who might be here today that might have recognized these things in their lives, building of their own kingdoms, and and maybe they've never come to you to receive a kingdom that is enduring. Father, I pray that right now, in their spirit, they would receive you, that they would call upon your name, ask for forgiveness, and that by your grace, you would redeem them right now. Lord, I pray for those who maybe have been wandering and have had many thrones set in their spiritual lives where they sit on it, not Christ. Father, I pray that you would take them down and that you would take your rightful place in our lives. Lord, would we go from this place not living for ourselves, but would you change us from the inside out through the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to live for you and for the good of others. Lord, and it is in Jesus' name that I ask this.